Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your humble host, Coach Jason Coop. And on this episode of the podcast, it is all about the new Aura Ring 3, which is just about ready to hit the marketplace. And if you have not had your social media feed inundated, with advertisements and influencers trying to peddle this ring on you, you certainly will after listening to this podcast because somehow they're gonna track it back to you and your interest has been perked. They're really good at that, by the way, because right when I started researching this ring, I started getting all kinds of advertisements all over Twitter and all over Instagram. This episode of the podcast was inspired by a number of people who reached out to me on social media and asked, is this type of technology worth it? Can I incorporate it it into my training? And if I choose to do so, how? And so I got together with a crack team of our coaches, Stephanie Howe, Corinne Malcolm, and Ryan Anderson, all who have been on this podcast before to discuss this from a very practical point of view just like we would in our own coaching groups and just like we would with our own athletes that we worked with. I learned a lot out of doing the research on this and throughout the course of this conversation. I hope everybody out there does as well. So here we go. I'm going to get right out of the way. Here's my conversation with Stephanie Howe, Corinne Malcolm, and Ryan Anderson, all about the Aura 3. The, the reason I wanted to bring y'all on to talk about this is not because any of us are sleep experts or wearable experts or technology experts or anything like that, but we're all obviously coaches. And I don't know about you guys, but I've been flooded like the last week specifically with the question, is the new Aura Ring worth it? Question mark. And the worth it piece is is valuable to discuss because it's three hundred bucks, and now they've got a new you know revenue model for that for being able to view and uh, view and have access to certain parts of your data. And athletes are always kind of making this like value proposition: like, do I get a new pair of shoes, or do I get this wearable, or do I go to an altitude camp, or whatever? And they're and it's kind of getting thrown at them left, right, and center. So anyway, that's the genesis of this is I'm getting a lot of questions and I wanted us to discuss it kind of from a coaching perspective, uh, given the fact that there is a new device out there, but we can kind of broaden it out to a lot of the other wearables. So before we start out, does anybody have any effort? Ryan, we're going to start with you because you're in the upper left of my screen. So I'm going to go in that order. Does anybody have any efforts of full disclosure? Are you sponsored by any of these wearables? Have you gotten any of them for free and if you are currently like personally using any of them, I think we should answer those three right off the bat. No, on all those accounts. Steph. I am not sponsored by any of them and I do not personally use any of the devices. Corinne. Yeah. I'm the weirdo in the room. Um, I've used whoop, um, via Adidas as part of their research out of the lab in Portland. Um, don't currently use it. I find that, it's got some of its own bugs and they are also launching a new product, I think too. And then, um, I'm going to be testing out the third generation of the aura ring, um, for free, but no, their compensation 
in the coming months. Were they like, are they going to lease it to you? Like I mean, they probably, back. they probably should. No, um, longtime Red Bull manager, uh-huh. um, Aaron Lutzi is, has moved over to be one of their managers at Aura Ring. And so just kind of like the friends and family discount. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sponsored or paid by any of these. I don't even accept them for free, even when they ask me to. Um, if I want to use them, I, any of these, I pay for them out of my own pocket. I use them and see if they're, see if they're worth anything. I currently am not using anything as a activity tracker other than my trusty Garmin, which I paid for full price. (laughs) And they're expensive. Full price. I can't wait till the Garmin seven comes out. Um, that's neither here nor there. So I was coming up with a way to set this up and literally at the last minute, for whatever reason, I came up with the simplest analogy for people to kind of properly understand this value proposition that people inevitably have when they're evaluating technology. And it, it comes down to the power meter in the early 2000s, which we've talked about as a coaching group is a lot, but I think the analogy really holds true here. So in the early 2000s, cycling-based power was widely recognized as something that was valuable for athletes to evaluate. We could look at it out on the field or in a lab, and we could take those numbers and make sense out of them and use them in a really practical and powerful way to improve athletic performance. But at the time, the limiting factor was kind of twofold is one, the power meters, really there's, there was one of them. SRM, they have a service center based here in Colorado, uh, Colorado Springs, which just started to, it actually was just getting booted up when I moved out here. Um, uh, but the first, the first limiting factor was they were just clunky. They're big, they're heavy. Nobody wanted to ride them in the pro Peloton because they were just, they were just too heavy. And the second thing is they're super expensive. They were probably about four or five grand at the time. And this was in the early 2000s. So based on inflation, that's like 10 grand now or something like that. They were really cost prohibitive for your normal everyday athlete to, 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 to kind of get a hold of, but we recognized it as the, and this is the important part. We recognized it as the gold standard of measuring power. And we recognized that that was important. So fast forward a few years and all these other players started coming out on the marketplace. We want to remove these, these, these barriers to entry. We're going to make them more affordable and lighter and in order to increase mass adoption. And so you saw power tap come into the marketplace and instead of measuring power at the level of the crank arm, they were measuring power at the hub. It was smaller, more cost effective. And, and then you had polar come along and they took a completely different approach for measuring power. They put a little sensor on the chain stay, which is the part of the bike frame that's just below the chain. And they measured the speed and vibration of the chain and somehow correlated that to power. And the effort of all of these things was to take this gold standard that SRM had created, which is measuring power. And all power is, is force and velocity. So we know the the torque that's being applied to the crank arms. And we know the velocity of the crank arms, force times the velocity is power. That's, you know, simple physics. And they're trying to, they're trying to come up with different ways to measure and capture that gold standard. What we're seeing with a lot of the wearables is very similar in particular regards to the sleep staging, which is, I think, what's going to dominate a lot of our conversation where a lot of these wearable companies are taking 
what is the gold standard of measuring sleep, which is polysomography, which is probably an order of magnitude more complicated to actually measure than power. If power is measured by a strain gauge and the velocity of the crank arms, sleep staging takes four or five different physiological measurements and combines them into you're going to sleep here, light sleep, deep sleep, and you're coming awake here. And so it, it gets more, it gets more complicated because of those four different types of, uh, those four, four different types of measurements. But what the wearable companies are trying to do is akin to what PowerTap and Polar were doing in the early 2000s is they were taking this gold standard of polysomography where they, which is widely recognized as the gold standard for scoring or staging sleep. And they're trying to make it more affordable than going into a sleep lab and getting your sleep measured in a poly, with polysomography. And they're trying to make it more accessible for everybody to do, as opposed to having all these devices on you and trying to go to sleep. They're trying to put it in the form factor of a ring or something that wraps around your wrist. Inherently, when you're doing that, when you're taking a gold standard and you're trying to move it over into a different kind of data acquisition uh, method, it becomes problematic. And that's what, what Aura is trying to work through right now. And I can remember when their stage two ring came out and that's what we're going to kind of start with right now it was they had their own validation study and everybody said oh it's scientifically validated which all that means is it's had a study that has validated it it doesn't say it's been validated to be good or good for half the people or not good for anybody those are all quote unquote validated all those answers would be validated and so when you when you dug into the actual study, the synopsis of it is, and I'm going to really trivialize this for the sake of time, is that it was pretty good at determining the borders of sleep when you went to sleep and when you woke up. And it was horrific in actually determining the different stages of sleep. And what I mean by horrific, it's a, it's a coin flip, right? You go look at the data, it's a coin flip. If you want to say, you know, you're in REM sleep for 20 minutes, you could really, or if the aura ring was telling you you were in REM sleep for 20 minutes, you could either be in REM sleep for 40 minutes or no minutes. Like it literally was that, like those were the, those were kind of the borders of that initial, uh, of that initial study. So we fast forward now to the aura ring three, which is coming out on all the influencers fingers that we're seeing on Instagram. And one of the claims is that the sleep stage scoring is more accurate and they have another validation study to quote unquote quote unquote prove that and kudos to marco what the heck is his last name i gotta go find the study on here right now altini marco altini who is the founder of uh heart rate what's the name of the company heart rate for athletes hrv for athletes I'm going to Possibly. put the link I'm going to put the link in the show notes but he's been in the heart rate variability game for a, for a really really long time and he's a consultant with Aura so you always have to take the validation study that's produced by the manufacturer with a little bit of a grain of salt but they are taking a new approach to the problem where they're using a combination of temp body temperature atagraphy which is just body which is just body movement and heart rate and heart rate variability combined with machine learning and this is kind of the new piece of it in order to stage the sleep and so they had this validation study with over a hundred uh with over a hundred subjects where they're comparing 
polysomography, which is the gold standard, to these new ways. And the study actually took a few different like section or a few different flavors or a few different combinations of all these different ways. And the the goal of it was to see which one of the combinations of all of these different other ways that we can approximate sleep stages is going to give us the best result. And so I'm going to start to open up to you guys because you guys have read the paper and I've got my own conclusions, but I'm not going to bias the, the, the discussion here. So on this first question of is the aura ring worth it? with specific regards to the sleep staging component, which is only, which is only one area of it. What do you guys have to say? Can I just first like just one method, methodological thing that I think is really interesting between the first two studies. The first one was pretty small. It was slightly more men than women. And it was for one night in a laboratory setting. The new study, the first quote, quote unquote, validation, validation study. study. Yeah, yeah. Well, quotes, I think are important there. Um, the second study was three different data sets, one out of Singapore, one yeah. out of Finland and one out of the US. They were larger. Each of them, each, each individual data set was larger than the initial validation study. And they were actually equal to slightly more females in each of those groups than there were in the initial validation study. So I think and they were longer. It wasn't just a one night study. So I, I would say just like to set the stage a little bit too on this new, on the new research that they've, that or the new re, the validation study is that it's a, it's a, a higher caliber data set that they're working with yeah. than from two years ago in 2019 when they, when they did the first validation study. So yeah. I think that's important just to note um, as we talk about advancements in both the technology and the research. Also groups across different continents. Yep. Which is a big yeah. one. And the and mean better. age, the mean age as well. It went from let's see here. It was you pretty had, young in the first study. Yeah, Singapore, sixteen point four, mean age Finland, thirty-eight years old, and then USA forty-five. So that's pretty interesting to see that it had a, a wider range of ages. So I think we can conclude that the validation study in quotes is better, right? We yeah, still come down. We still we still come down to the question, and, and that's fair. And I would say that the the first validation study was weak. That I don't I don't think anybody here would disagree with that, nor anybody who's actually in this space would disagree with that. But you got to start somewhere, and that's a reasonable it's a reasonable place to start. I don't mind the marketing team, or I don't mind the marketing team saying that there is a validation study there. People extrapolating that the validation is good or bad, we can you know we can we can blame those people for uh, for that type of analysis. But here, once again, to set this up again, you have this once again you have this gold standard which uses several different ways to stage and score sleep, right? You've got a bunch of different things hooked up to you. They're measuring brain waves. They're, uh, they're, they're measuring much muscle activity. They're measuring, uh, uh, your ECG or your, uh, cardio or different types of cardiac signals. And they're putting that all into, this is when you go to sleep. This is when you're in deep sleep. This is when you're in light sleep. This is when you wake up and what those, and what those cycles look like. The Oura ring isn't capable of making all of those measurements, but they're using surrogates to approximate for all of those and then comparing it to the gold standard. And so I want to hear from you guys again after like reading through this whole thing. Is it doing a good job of scoring this sleep? I mean, going back to the listener's question that I started with, is it worth it? 
with this with this particular respect and we'll get into the other areas in a little bit i promise my big like just simple answer is it's a lot better but it still has a lot of limitations and is it worth it i think there is some room for improvement before i think it's really good at detecting what it says it's going to detect in terms of sleep like what are what are you going to use this data for you know um that's a good place to start if if it's worth it or not so if this is measuring deep sleep and REM cycle more we need deep sleep that's when we recover from a physical standpoint as athletes we definitely would like to know that and then REM sleep that's when we're uh the brain is resetting recovering so to speak so yeah knowing those data points would be very helpful but what what is the athlete gonna do to change that I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. We all know the things to do to sleep better. Put your phone on the other side of the room. Don't look at blue light. Don't drink alcohol close to bed. Do all those things. But, like, is having this data going to make you more neurotic and give you more anxiety? Or is it going to motivate you to do the things you know you need to do? Corinne's laughing her ass off, so you better jump in. Oh, no, I just uh, when people ask me about this, it's like, you know, it's a habit tracker at the end of the day, right? It's if if you need this thing and they honestly they kind of say that at the beginning of the second paper a little bit that there's like this habit tracker component of it, like it holds, you know, quote unquote, can hold you accountable. And so I think that's the biggest thing and is like, do you need to spend the money for something to say for something to encourage you to get into bed at 830? Or something to encourage you to not drink alcohol every night or to drink caffeine late in the day, right? Like you could hold yourself accountable. I've got a sticker chart in my daily planner that I use to hold myself accountable, but you could also, you know, spend money on this. Um, I'll agree with Steph here that the data is that like, it's saying that it's better, um, particularly in two stage. And I was trying to dive into that a little bit more, the two stage versus four stage. I feel like that's maybe a little bit high level complication there. It's getting better, but it seems like there are certain areas where it still has a long way to go, despite the addition of all these like different factors that it can measure, like, which I don't know. I don't, I don't think that it's quite there yet to be this perfect measure. And so I'm not sure why, like what, what is the necessary investment for an athlete in that if it's not completely accurate? So here's the issue that I've had, that I've always had with the, you're using it as a behavioral tool, right? We, we, we all want up, down, or sideways indicators. Are things getting better, worse, or are they the same? And we, we do this in the physiology lab. We measure people's VO2 max and their power at lactate threshold, their pace at lactate threshold, their pace on different intervals and things like that. All as indicators of are you getting better or are you getting worse? If you're using something like this in terms of is my sleep getting better or worse? And inherently, the way that you are determining that does not have a certain level of accuracy, you may, you're making behavioral changes with which you don't really know either what is going on beforehand or what is going on afterwards. And so this goes back to my coin flip thing initially. If I have an athlete that says, okay, I'm starting it, I'm, I'm, and I'm just gonna give it a one to 10 score just to make it easy for everybody to understand. I start out, I get my ring, and it's telling me that I'm sleeping at a level five and I wanna improve that to a level seven or whatever. I make a behavioral change. I put my phone on the other side of bed at night, like Ryan, like Ryan just mentioned. And all of a sudden that five went to a four. 
you don't know whether that five went to a four because that behavior didn't work or because the the readings and the way that the, that the scoring system works inherently, and now with the new machine learning, it's the same thing. You don't know if that's adding a degree of variability that supersedes the amount of improvement that you might get from the intervention, which is, which is a big thing, right? A lot of times the magnitude of the change from the intervention is smaller than the accuracy and the precision of the way that you're measuring that certain thing. And we see that once again, even in the lab, if you have a two to 3% accuracy with whatever, whatever measurement and you get 2% improvement, you can actually show it as getting 1% worse, depending upon how you're, depending upon how you're measuring things. And with the, with the wide swath of what I'm seeing in this, in this latest research paper, I still, even though, even though they'll come to the conclusion that it's, that it'll track, you know, sleep stages to 96% or whatever, I still look at the wide swath as problematic because you don't like, you don't know those before and after, after points and the magnitude of change is just so small. Go ahead, Corinne. So I think that's like the perfect, the perfect little thing that I wanted to add earlier. That is only the 96% accuracy that they, that they're going to claim is for two stage classification, which is only right. delineating REM from non-REM yeah. versus forced classification. The best they could get there was just under 80%. It looks like, which is, which is different, right? And that's going to be light sleep, deep sleep, getting four stages of classification out of there. So once again, it's like what, what data is actually valuable there and what is the accuracy of that data? Yeah. I mean, you're kind of, you're kind of faced with two, you're kind of faced with two problems in my opinion, right? You make all the behavioral changes that Ryan, that Ryan just mentioned, and we could go over however many more there actually are. There's probably 10 of them, right? Cool room. It's dark. Put your phone on the other side of the room, you know, no blue light, you know, keep your room uncluttered, all those, you know, kind of all those things. And you hope that those behaviors are going to result in some sort of positive, in sort of some sort of positive movement. If we're talking about it in sleep, and it's kind of the same thing with training. If you're not tracking training, right? You hope that all the intervals that you're doing are going to improve you. But if you're not tracking that, you really, you really don't know. But here, when you have a, a way of 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 actually recording it, and the magnitude of those changes is so small compared to the accuracy level, it becomes inherently problematic because you really can't track are those behavioral changes actually making a difference. And going back to the whole, the neurotic aspect of it, absolutely. If I put the phone on the other side of my room and my sleep score got worse, I'd bring the phone back to my head. I mean, cause it's data, right? It's science. Go ahead, Steph. I, I think what the consumer doesn't realize is that this is a surrogate measure and it's not always accurate. And so we tend to take the scores from these devices, whether it be an accelerometer or an aura ring or just even a heart rate monitor, and we assume they are 100% accurate. And that is not the case. And I think that's where the problem comes in because you're just looking day to day at your numbers and not realizing that there is a lot of variability and it's not always super sensitive specific. And, and when you use it as a, like a hard rule of like, this is what it is, that's where you get into trouble. And then if you take a step back even further, you know, it's like, do we need, <laughs> I, do we need something to tell us if we're getting enough sleep? I mean, I can tell you nights when I don't get enough sleep, I can tell in the morning. It's not that I need a, a tracker or a number to give me a sleep score. 
and that's overgeneralizing it, but that's kind of like the practical application, I think, of of using a tracker of sort to give me more numbers, <laughs> whether or not they're accurate or not. But a lot of people dig it. I mean, I had, you know, I, I've I've probably had six of my own athletes either ask or just do this without asking, go and buy, get a wearable. And then we're trying to incorporate the data, you know, into training in some kind of logical way. And I, I kind of agree with you, Steph. It's a hard, it, like, it's hard for me to honestly say, okay, we're going to do this or do that based on what I'm, what, what, what I'm seeing. The best, the best example are the whoop scores. Like there's no correlation between the whoop, what do they call it? Readiness score, right? Is that right? Or recovery score. Maybe it changed. That's why I'm getting confused. I think it's I think it's readiness. Yeah, I, think I think it's, it's kind of their their MO. There's no I, I find no correlation between if I give a hard workout to an athlete and their readiness score is two hundred versus twenty, there's no correlation on on that athlete's performance between those two wide swaths. Zero is like zero at all. They perform really good when it's twenty, they perform really bad when it's two hundred, and then like vice versa the next week. It's it's just so from a practical perspective, I've always found that really frustrating. Well, and you see that number too, and you're like, oh, well, I can't, obviously I can't do the workout today. And you get in your head about like, am I, well, it's, I'm in the red. So clearly like I shouldn't be doing this today. And it's like, well, it's not, once again, it's not, as Steph mentioned, it's not perfect. Right. And like, they try to, they try to play it off as if heart rate variability is this like hard and fast data point. And it's really not you know, like the best way to even if, if, if you want to use heart rate variability isn't a one off number. Like it takes a lot more time and effort than that to look at like a rolling weighted average of this value. And context is always going to be important. And I feel like context is oftentimes lost when you're using one metric to be, you know, the how you steer the ship. That's not how it works. Yeah. Ryan, what were you going to say? You're going to jump in there really quick. I was going to say to, to Stephanie's point when she said, uh, I know when I haven't got a lot of sleep, I mean, yeah, like mom, dad, like I'm trying to train, I'm trying to work, I'm trying to get my kids to bed. And then you're just going to get this other thing to tell you you're not getting enough sleep and add stress to yourself. Why would you do that to yourself? You, you realize all the battles and limited time you have don't get something that adds stress to the pie becomes more of a psychological issue then too. And if you, you think you're getting good sleep and you wake up race morning and you're in the red, it's like, Oh crap, you know, like, and, and that's not necessarily, if it's not a true score measured based off of something physiological, you don't necessarily need that, um, to already kind of set you back when you're, when you're going to the start line. So I, I'm going to present the, the argument from, the data scientists out there that I, that I see a lot. And I, I've had to think, I think I've had to think really hard about this because I think it plays out differently in different sport groups. But what they will say is, is that including this type of biometric data, and we're going to broaden this out from just a sleep score, right? To biometric data, whether it's heart rate variability or body temperature or whatever, to help direct training in the sense that I'm going to go easy on these days and go hard on these days either in full or in part with this biometric data, what that enables you to do is to give you a better rule set to go from, as opposed to the athletes who inherently want to work really hard, especially at the real level from going, yeah, coach, I can go hard again today. That's what they will say. They will say that this gives you something. It might not be perfect, but it gives you something 
that you either use wholeheartedly or in isolation, I guess is the best word. You either use it in isolation or in addition to other variables to help come up with that training directional arrow in terms of what to do. What you guys can hear my dog in the background. She's going to annoy the crap out of us for the rest of this deal. What do you guys think of that? I'd say, yeah, that could potentially work. Cause if you're an elite level athlete, um, especially let's, let's say at the Olympic level where you could potentially have a team helping you where you've got your, your coach designing your workouts, you've got somebody working with you from the nutrition side. And now you bring in this, the sleep coach, so to speak. Um, yeah, if you, if you could balance all that out, I mean, that would be awesome to have all those different experts to help you, but yeah, it's not applicable to the majority of the population. I I slightly disagree. I I see value in making sure all of those areas of your life are dialed in, but I'm not certain that a sleep score is going to tell me if I can train an athlete differently. I think the feedback I get from the workouts and from the athlete themselves of um, how they feel and all the things that are going on in their life, I think are going to be a lot more indicative of their ability to train, whether they need an easy day or if they can keep pushing than just looking at a number. So I, I do see value, but I also think we can't just use numbers to override our dialogue that we have with athletes and really just checking in and, and using our words and not just looking at numbers. Yeah, I think, I mean, we've kind of, we kind of had this conversation as a coaching group all the time of what's our most important thing in training peaks, right? And the platform that we're using to prescribe training from. And I think nine times out of 10, it's subjective post-workout comments, right? Like it's understanding how the athlete felt about the workout and using that in conjunction with the data to decide how the workout went and what they can handle the next day or how they feel the next day. So I think it's, I would I think we do athletes a disservice to say that you need a number to steer your training versus just being able to listen to your body. And I know that's easier said than done. I myself have been an athlete when I've ignored all those signals and kept pushing because, you know, you're driven and you're motivated and you want to succeed. And so I think part of that is though that goes back to Steph's point of like having that dialogue of having someone that you trust and that is part of your support system to to temper those personality quirks and, and allow you to listen to your body and allow you to have honest post-workout feedback and not ignore those signals. So I think that, I mean, there've been, there've been studies done on AI coaching, right. And this is coming down the pipeline for all of us. Like there, there is AI machine learning stuff in the pipeline. This is some of it. Um, they've done studies on, on, you know, with, with control groups, with HRV, um, driven, I would say workout prescription, right? If your HRV says this, we do that versus whatnot. And, you know, basically the HRV group had slightly fewer, but not a whole lot less, um, intensity sessions during those. And they came out about even, so I don't know, it's AI is coming. Machine learning is coming, but it's going to be, you know, at the end of the day, you're still a human being with a brain. And I think we have to listen to that as well. I think that when we're looking that when we're looking at this in totality, you guys hit the nail on the head, right? You're using subjective feedback first and foremost, and then you're using workout data second, and then it's almost like a pick'em behind everything else that you can use. And I've always thought that those first two steer the ship so strongly that the rest of everything, even if it's really good, 
provides such little steerage that it's kind of it's always like a nice to know or I don't really care. You know, that's that's what I've really thought is that the first two, when you're looking at this proposition of something providing information to steer training, I'm going to go hard on Tuesday or I'm going to go easy on Tuesday. Those some things should start with subjective feedback and then how the workouts are tracking and then everything else. Like, I don't even know. I mean, it's hard for me to even say that it matters like one or 2% because it might not matter. It kind of like might, might not matter at all. So then, then I'm left with the, okay, is this is a compliance, is this a compliance mechanism for, you know, some other habit that, 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 that we want to try to reinforce. What do you think, Ryan? So we've subjective feedback, best thing for the athlete and the coach and that relationship of honest communication our data on training peaks is helpful. And then if we start bringing in these other data points, then maybe the athlete starts doubting their own subjective feedback. And that would be a vicious cycle because then they're not able to communicate with their coach. Honestly, it's like, well, well, my, my sleep tracker said I'm good to go, but I don't feel like it. I need, I need to give that feedback that I actually do feel good. Um, and that, that is very problematic. Well, in a lot of ways, these devices, so, so you guys can remember at the, uh, the coaching summit that we had, if you listen to just Justin Ross, Ryan, you're going to help, help me have to help me out. Oh no, wait, I wrote this quote down in my notebook. Hold on. Give me two seconds. I'm going to find it. He had this really, uh, he had this really interesting quote that said that, that, and so Justin Ross is a sports psychologist. I've had him on this podcast. He was an advisor of the book and he, he's, he's very, very good at, at, at what, what he does. He said, athletes who can self-regulate better are going to make better decisions and therefore perform better. And part of that self-regulatory, so first off, shout out to Justin. What he's saying by that is, is that as coaches, we should be assisting them in their, not only in their physiological capabilities, but in their capabilities to self-regulate, right? To say, okay, I'm going hard or I'm going too easy. And I feel that a lot of, and even the power meter does this, back to my original, my original point, when we're put, when we're throwing in tools that would run counter to that goal, we have to look really hard and really fast at, or really hard and really deep at if we want to actually incorporate those tools with athletes. And this is a good one, right? If you're using your readiness score, your sleep score, or whatever to determine, am I going harder? Am I going easy? As opposed to the athlete being honest in their communication and saying, I'm cooked or I'm not that is regressive in terms of helping the athlete be, or it's counterproductive to, to helping the athlete be self-regulatory. So I've always, or I've not always, but I've, I've looked at the, at these pieces of technology through that lens as well, in terms of, is this going to facilitate their own self-regulatory capabilities, or is it going to actually make that problem worse? I agree with you. I think I think it's a regression and I think I like to think of it like nutrition where our bodies have so many systems in place to tell us when we're hungry, when we're full, and we have the ability to override systems on a, on a daily basis. And when we start to use external feedback to tell us when we're hungry, when we think we should eat, then we get really confused and we're not able to listen to our, our body actually giving us those hunger cues or those fullness cues. And I see this 
in a similar manner of we're not listening to our bodies. <laughs> as cliche as that sounds, we're using an external number and that doesn't give us, that doesn't empower athletes to to know what's going on and to be able to feel that of like, yeah, I'm ready to go or, oh, I'm actually really tired today. And it, it takes away a piece of that, just being honest and communicating. So I agree that it can be a bit of a regression when we're not actually tuning inward, which I think is the strongest thing we have as athletes and as coaches to talk with our athletes about how they're feeling internally. So are any of you going to make, go ahead, Ryan. So to, to steal something from Justin Ross's presentation about this, okay, we need to be, we need to be communicating with our communicating with our coach often because they're going to give us insights that we didn't fully see. They're going to, they're going to be empathetic towards us and we're in turn going to be empathetic to ourselves. And he had one study um, he cited, it's like the higher your emotional intelligence is then the greater use of your coping strategies and then the most successful athletic performances correlate to the effective coping strategies. So that was very layered, but basically the more emotionally intelligent you are, the better you're going to cope when it gets hard and not only the races, but your training and handling the stress of life and all the, all the factors that go into being um, an athlete. Let, let me pose this a different way. And we're going to move from sleep staging onto another area of this, this wearable. And I told you guys, this is going to take up the whole time, but let's say it was perfect. Let's just say that we could wave our magic wand and all of a sudden have a, a perfect way to collect and analyze sleep. And then we could use that. Then it was exactly, we knew exactly when the athlete went to sleep, exactly when they went into REM sleep, exactly how long the REM sleep was and exactly when they woke up. It was, per, it was perfect. There's some, something that, you know, somebody came up with that can measure all that and pipe it into our training peaks dashboard at 6am when everybody wakes up and you can look at that number and use it for something before the athlete goes to, goes out and trains. Would you use it and what would you use it for if it were perfect? I don't think that would make me a better coach. I would use it in context with some of the other numbers, but also if you don't go out and try, even if you didn't get good sleep, I don't think that's going to make or break a workout. I think there's other metrics that are more central to performance than sleep. So I, I don't think it would be that useful for me. Go ahead, Corinne. I was going to say, so we know that sleep is obviously from like a long-term perspective, very important, but it's, I don't know. I don't think it's the king metric here. Like when I see these wearables, sleep isn't the thing that I find most intriguing about them even. And so, yes, from a long-term perspective, being able to be like, Hey, like, you know, I have to do this, you know, subjectively. It's like an athlete says they're tired and I say, okay, well, have you been sleeping? And then they say, well, no, my two-year-old's sick. And I'm like, okay, well, now we might know why you might be tired. So I don't know, like sleep gives me maybe that layer, but it's not, you know, once again, that's just kind of policing an athlete's habit or like habits or letting them police their own habits. To me, that's not necessarily valuable information day in and day out that I need from an athlete in order to coach them. Ryan, what do you think? 
I'll, I'll answer from the opposite side for the sake of the conversation. Um, yes, I'd love to use it as a coach because I feel like I could plan the, the harder efforts and when they're recovered, of course. Um, so, okay, we've got, we've got this VO2 hill interval block we're starting. We've got three workouts in the first week. Of course, they're going to be a little worn down. That's what we're expecting as we go on. And then maybe they just drop out the floor and say, like, okay, let's, let's cut. We don't need to do that anymore. Um, but yeah, it, it would be really, really cool if they could give us yeah hundred percent accurate representation of yeah, the recovered let's work hard or, Hey, let's back off the, the two-year-old is sick. We're not getting, we're not getting that amount of sleep. Sleep and recovery and are not wh- the same metric. Like that, that's like that, like that to me is important here. Sleep and recovery are not the same metric. Sleep is important for recovery, 100%. but it is not, they, they're not an equal, like it's not cool. Co- like it's not perfectly equal yeah. there. Yeah. And I think if you're using sleep as like a metric to determine if you're ready for hard work, then it's like you're shuffling around workouts almost on a day-to-day basis, at least a weekly basis. And you might not have a good a good buildup. You know, if you're trying to work on upper end fitness and you're doing a lot of VO2 max workouts, they need to be in sequence. Like you can't be like, Oh, we're going to do one this Tuesday and then you're not recovered. So we're going to push this one way back to next Thursday. And I think it just keeps it just, instead of placing like the, the lens on the big picture of the block, it's like day to day and almost micromanaging it in a way that's not useful. We, so we think this is complicated for the coach. Well, yeah. yeah, So we think, we think that this is complicated (laughs) just as a little bit of an anecdote. There's this company called Omega wave who a few of you guys might be familiar with that has been trying to solve this kind of in a different way for maybe three decades. Now I remember seeing their first, uh, the first iteration of their device in maybe like 2005 or 2006. And they actually have good penetration in some of the, like the interdisciplinary sports, like combat sports and things like that, that have, you have to train a lot of different areas, right? You have to train power, you have to train speed, you have to train endurance and things like that. And their whole system is aimed at giving you these stoplight systems specifically for the type of training that you are primed for, for the day. So if you're really primed to adapt to, let's just say a power workout, right? It will, it will take all of these biological measurements and say, you know what, you need to go lift fast. Or if you're really primed for a strength workout, they'll say, okay, you need to go and train strength. Or if you're really primed for an endurance workout or really primed for rest, it kind of categorizes it, categorizes it differently uh, and, and gives you guidance on the, the type of physiology that you are m- most apt to be receptive to based on, those bi- bi- based on those biological inputs. So it can get way more complicated, but I kind of... I've, 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 I've thought about this a lot. If the measurement was perfect, because we need, we don't need perfect measurements, but we need them to be pretty freaking good in order to, to make sense out of them. If it were perfect, I might use it one out of every hundred workouts. So it does that make a difference? Maybe for one or two athletes, maybe, maybe, maybe it makes a difference. And what I mean by that is, is if I saw a sleep score that was really horrific or really good and it lined up with two or other three, two or three other pieces of data that all were giving me the same directional arrow. They were in a bad mood. They had, you know, two previously poor workouts. Then I would say, okay, my plan was to do this. Since all these directional arrows are pointing the other way, let's do that. That would be the use case for it. If we had, in my opinion, 
if we had perfect numbers as I would use it alongside other data to come up with that training direction if it were all if they were all collaborative, right? If they were all kind of pointing in the same direction, if they're all pointing in different directions, which is the 99 times out of a hundred, you still have to use coaching instinct or kind of rely on the, on the plan that you, you built, you built beforehand, which should, should be rooted in solid physiology from the get go. Well, and here's one more thought to that. Um, Cause this is a factor that we experience as ultra runners. Like how many people sleep well the night before a race or two nights before a race? I know I've slept terrible before some of my best races. And if I had used my sleep as a kind of a, a I guess a metric for if I'm going to go do long runs or if I'm going to do my workouts and I just like skip it when I'm tired, then I get to like race day and I'm like, Oh crap, you know, I'm tired. I've never done this before. And I think that's, that's doing a disservice to athletes as well. Yeah. We can go back. Kern probably knows the story better than I can. So if you can, if you want to elaborate on it, do it where they've blinded Olympic level athletes to their heart rate variability scores, which is part of this whole mix. They've blinded the athletes to those, specifically before competition and what ends up happening a lot of times because of all these, you know, sleep disruptions and things like that, the times where their heart rate variability is the lowest, which would be indicative of they couldn't, they're not going to perform uh, good that day or they're not, they're not going to perform very well that day. They've gone out and won medals, you know, when, if you were evaluating that from a training perspective, you go, oh, your heart rate variability sucks. Let's, you know, do an easy run today or something like that. These people are like winning freaking gold. Jesse Diggins, right. Was the one who specifically won a gold medal when her heart rate variability was saying that she wasn't going to perform very well that day. Yeah. They use a, a Sunto based software called first beat that does some overnight reading stuff. Very Scandinavian company, but additionally, there's kind of this I don't know, in my mind, kind of an OG paper in HRV space that was written in 2014. Um, who's it by? Martin Boucher. I'm probably not saying his name right, but it was called Monitoring Monitoring Training Status with Heart Rate Measures. Do all roads lead to Rome? And it's probably my favorite heart rate, rate variability paper out there. And partially it's because it expresses the nuance of these readings, i.e. saying, this is actually really complicated and that we assume that high heart rate variability, low resting heart rate, that's always a positive. That's not always the case. There's actually all these different factors that could create that dynamic or high heart rate variability, high resting heart rate, or, you know, low heart rate variability, high resting heart rate. All these different like pairings of these metrics do not always equate to what we think they should like while athletes are tapering actually your heart rate variability can get low and just a nervous system response to this reduction in volume and that like if you're a coach or an athlete only using readiness scores and you happen to be an athlete whose heart variability drops actually during tapering you'd be panicking right thinking that you weren't going to perform but truly that's just your nervous system's natural response to that training like that change in training so I think it's really easy to fixate on these values, having to say a certain thing. And it's truly so much more nuanced than that, that I don't know that AI will ever be clever enough to figure out that nuance without the necessary context. And once again, like context is key and the simple inputs that they're getting from a wrist worn monitor or a finger, you know, a finger worn monitor can't, unless I don't know how it could take in all that context appropriately. 
So we're kind of poo-pooing on this a lot. I didn't expect this conversation to go quite down this rabbit hole. What, like, what is like the the aura ring and other wearables measure other things? There's heart rate variability. There's body temperature, and sometimes all of those things get combined into a score and stuff like that. What in you guys' eyes are the are the potential use cases if there if if there are any? I'll I'll start out since I've gone last the last the last few times. But I would use body temperature. If I saw athletes' body temperature rising over the course of a couple of days and they were feeling poorly, I'd be like, "You might be getting sick. Let's back off." And the the reason the the one of the reasons that. I don't really hesitate that much in giving that counsel is because I know that they're not going to miss out on any training because you can only handle so much stress over long periods of time. And if you have a few things that are telling you that you need to back off and body temperature is a pretty powerful one in my, in, in, in my opinion, um, you can, you can just say, okay, we're going to take this rest phase or even a little short rest period earlier and that work that you were quote unquote missing out on just gets replaced four weeks or six weeks down the line. So I, I view that as, as if there were if there were one thing that I would use the most out of this four hundred dollar device, and I don't know what their plan is to actually access that data, ten dollars a month or something like that. I honestly think it would be that. I just take body temperature. I take body temperature and the awake sleep duration, and that was it. So that's me. Yeah, I think those are useful. Um, I think looking at trends over time. So if you have, if you're wearing this device for months and maybe have like a lot of data, you can see changes throughout the season um, and you can learn things about yourself. I see it more of a long-term interesting end of one um, project that you can, you can learn more. And I, I always think tracking and learning more about your yourself is useful. I just think you have to take it with a grain of salt and know that it's not perfect. So day to day, there's probably some variations like zoom out and, and use that information to just see long-term how you're moving throughout your, your life. Corinne, do you want to mention the period prediction? part of sure. the new aura ring there, I mean, there are a couple of other wearables that are trying to do it as well as well as ai that's trying to get it yeah. get at it so as soon as you said well if my athletes got this increase in body temp and they're not feeling good maybe they're getting sick or maybe they're about to menstruate um or as steph mentioned in our chat as well or ovulation so um body temperature changes are part of hormonal fluctuation over the course of a woman's menstrual cycle month to month and so um using that data um with aura they're going to basically include a period tracking component of the app, which will allow um, women to kind of monitor that. I think part of it's going to be predictive, but the idea here, and Steph and I have talked at length about this in, in the process of writing um, actually the next edition of your book was that tracking is important in part because you're learning once again, individual variability about yourself as opposed to like what, you know, broadly, we assume is the same for every single person who menstruates, which is not the case, right? So there's a lot of individual variability and understanding how you feel in and around different phases of your menstrual cycle. It can be important, valuable information for you and for your coach. Um, that being said, I'm not exact, exactly sure how that will look in um, the new, the newest edition of the Aura Ring, um, akin to your mention about being sick. So Aura Ring has been using body temperature, tracking that finger temperature, um, 
but, and then whoop has been using, I'm not exactly sure how this works on a wrist worn monitor, but they track, they track respiratory rate with theirs and they use that as an indicator of potentially becoming sick. Um, they've got a bunch of COVID COVID study data in and around that, both with, um, vaccine, getting the doses of the vaccine and with athletes who were athletes or people who got COVID while wearing the devices as well. So they've got some interesting data sets out there. Um, but I think akin to stuff, like I think the long-term stuff, like akin to getting blood work done, right? When do you want to get blood work done? Well, I'd like you to get blood work done when you feel good, right? We, you need a baseline of something to go off of if you're trying to look for detectable, important changes and then understanding, you know, how much of a change in any of these variables is meaningful, um, is also, I mean, one complicated and two very individual. And so I think having that long-term data would allow you to possibly decipher what meaningful changes are for the individual, if that makes sense. Uh, so both of you, I'm going to synopsize that a little bit. You, you both of you, and I, I agree with both of you think the power is in the long-term tracking, not I'm going to do this tomorrow or that on Wednesday, it's looking at patterns over long periods of time and seeing how everything influences those patterns. Just like training. Corinne's yeah, giving big, me a thumbs big, up. Big thumbs up. This is a podcast, Corinne. It's going to come out on YouTube, but like 10, pe- 10, yeah, 10 people like watch the YouTube channel. So people can't see that. Ryan, do you yeah. have anything to add to that? That is an appropriate synopsis. I would say, <clears throat> keep it simple. If, if you've got the the time slept on your phone and the app and you see, Oh man, I've only been getting five to six hours of sleep in the past week. That's not good. I'm going to get in bed early. Like keep it simple. You know, I mean, Coop, you've mentioned that it's like, yeah, if it, if it makes you get in bed earlier, great. Um, or you can be like Corinne and having your log with your stickers to track it that way. I like Corinne's like, pro- they're probably a 10th of a penny each sticker compliance mechanism as opposed to a $300 tech device. All right, so this is a big no, or maybe if you've got the 300 bucks to throw at it. I think that's fair. I think it's, you know, do you need it? Not necessarily. I wouldn't use it blindly. If you've got a coach. That's the biggest issue it. I have. Don't, don't spring it on them. Have this conversation with your coach if it's something that's practical for you or not. Um, but I think you're buying an expensive habit tracking device that, that's more the big, than anything that's the biggest it's the blind following and here's the thing i get a soapbox since we're at the end of our time here and i can do that because it's my podcast the 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 blind following is created from the device manufacturers trying to extract as much value as possible out of the data that they're collecting and they put it into all of these different you know suggestions on what they should on what people should do about their fitness and wellness and training. And it's too much of a leap of faith to go from those measurements to go run hard tomorrow without some sort of advanced or human intervention to filter through all the noise. And it's the blind following of that, that really kind of, that that's what kind of like irks me the most, the people that'll wake up and say, oh, well, I'm supposed to run hard today or I'm supposed to work out easy or whatever because of, my body temperature is, you know, one tenth of one degree different, or I'm getting a I'm getting a readiness score of less than a hundred, or whatever the 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 kind of baseline is. That's that's the piece where I think we're not there yet, and I don't know if we'll we'll ever get there, no matter how many different wearables we can kind of put on our bodies. 
who's going to test them all? Who's going to wear the whoop strap, the aura ring, the Fitbit ones? Because the Fitbit ones actually have pretty decent, actually have pretty uh, de- decent accuracy when we're comparing them all. Not that they're all great, but it's it's pretty decent. Who's going to wear them all and then compare them? Have, so, has somebody done that? There's probably, I don't, I assumed you saw this Twitter thread. I will find it for you, Coop, and send it your it way. The, but there's a great, and we'll, yeah, we'll make Coop link it in the show notes. But there's a great Twitter thread about this where a female um, researcher did this. She used Aura Ring, she used Whoop, and she used something else, and she compared, you know, and 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 is and exercises actively. She does CrossFit and she does cardio, um, and so she was able to look look at like how was it picking up stress from those workouts? How was it? Were that was it overestimating sleep? You know, was it you know precise versus accurate? Um, like how consistent was were the measures? And so it's actually very interesting. Obviously, an N of one of N of one study, but um, I'll send it your way. And it's definitely a very interesting thread that we could link in the show notes for people just to see what someone did with that information. You know, so going back to my power meter analogy at the very beginning of this, this might've been DC Rainmakers, one of his first like deals that kind of put him on the launch pad. He did that with power meters. So he had like seven power meters on his bike and compared them all in different conditions, which is really important, right? So, okay, I ride at hundred Watts. So I ride at 200 Watts. I ride at 300 Watts. I do this interval workout and how does it change? And it was really illuminating that the, the, the research came after that because it's harder to do, but it was really illuminating for the consumers because they could see, okay, these surrogate measures potentially could work in these conditions and these surrogate measures are horrible. Like it kind of took the edges of the bell curves and completely threw them out because of this like really simple test. Granted, it was still on one person. Because, but because some of them were so horrifically inaccurate, to use that word again, because some of them were so horrifically in, inaccurate, the consumers filtered down the different products in a much more, in a much more quick fashion than they would have otherwise. Super interesting. All right, that's it for today, you guys. Appreciate the conversation as always. Links to everything on the show notes. We will see you around next time. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to those three coaches for coming on the podcast today and sharing some of their insight and wisdom. And I know that at times it seems like we were hating on a lot of these uh, different pieces of technology, but really in actuality, we're kind of at the coalface of using these with our athletes. Our athletes can choose to buy any devices and incorporate any type of technology that they want to in their training. And at the end of the day, we have to be, we as coaches have to be that filter that takes all of that information and makes it actionable and something that we can actually use to help improve athletes. If you appreciated this podcast, as we mentioned during the course of this podcast, it is not sponsored by anybody. That's a commitment that I made to you, the listeners. Over 100 episodes ago when I started it, I was not going to take on any sponsorships or endorsements or partnerships to try to monetize this podcast. So if you enjoy this podcast, you can help it. You can help us out tremendously by sharing it with your friends and training partners. You can hit me up on social media. And if you think that coaching is the right thing for you, either one, either with one of the three fine coaches that we had on the podcast today or any one of our other fantastic CTS coaches, You can go and check out www.trainright.com for all of our coaching packages, or you can reach out to me personally and I can help steer you in the right direction. 
That's it for today, folks. As always, we will see you out on the trails.